Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. As usual, this is a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, Fastcase, and Law Street Media. Did I say Fastcase? Did I say it correctly? I didn't. Fastcase. I should add that I'm also editor-in-chief of the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation. That's also a collaboration with my friends over at Fastcase, Full Court Press. Our guest today is on the editorial board of advisors. Today is the second episode where we're going to talk about the forever chemical called PFAS. They say nothing is forever. PFAS chemicals are, apparently. Or at least, you know, forever is relative. Uh, it's like when you say, uh, I, you never called me back. You know what I mean? People have a, this, this, this exaggerated view of time. But we are not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about these. Let's see if I can pronounce them. You know, I've, I've seen a couple different, uh, they're either per or polyfluorinated substances or per or polyfluoralkyl substances. And that's the last time I'm going to attempt to say that because PFAS is much easier. So now you'll know PFAS is a group of chemicals. They're made by man. They've been used in industry and consumer products since the 50s, just like me. They've been used in nonstick cookware. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think that was in Teflon. And if that's incorrect, I'm sure I'll hear about it. Water-repellent clothing, stain-resistant fabrics and carpets, some cosmetics, firefighting foams, and products that resist grease. Who doesn't need that? Not referring to the musical, of course. Water and oil. You know, I'm going to talk about the firefighting foams for a second because there's a giant bunch of cases down in uh, consolidated in South Carolina. These are brought by individuals and water suppliers against manufacturers and distributors. Some of the big ones are DuPont and 3M on the defense side. Uh, this is all, as I said, MDL, MDLs in South Carolina. They're chugging along through discovery. Uh, plaintiffs are suing for bodily injury, property damage, and medical monitoring. We're going to have a podcast on medical monitoring too. These, uh, these cases are all centered around the firefighting foam, aqueous film-forming foam. That is, a, that is one of the PFAS chemicals, of which there are thousands. The judge in that case, the judge, uh, oh boy. You know, when you go to read these, you don't realize. Judge Gurgel or Gurgel. I'm sorry, Your Honor, if I said that incorrectly. Judge Gurgel, we'll say. Um, gosh. You know what? I'm going to go back and check. And if I'm wrong, horribly wrong, I'll say so. But anyway, he just appointed all the plaintiff steering and liaison committee folks. He's uh, he's got a pretty uh, he's got a pretty ambitious schedule going. Parties are working on getting all of their experts together and then deposing each other's experts um, in this June and this summer. This is a complex complex case. Defendants have provided. Two and a half million documents already. Okay, so there's a there's a bunch of documents to go through. Plaintiffs have submitted 1,400 fact sheets. Bellwether trials are set for this fall. Trial uh, trial in January of 2023. I mention this case because it's a monster and because it's believed to be uh, the case that will have uh, it will impact all future PFAS litigation. So yeah, big deal. In our previous episode on PFAS, we discussed the scientific, environmental, and remediation aspects of these chemicals with two scientists. Um, 
And then uh, in a later episode, did I say this already? I think I did. doesn't matter if you weren't paying attention. I'll say it again. We're going to interview a uh, prominent plaintiff attorney who handles uh, PFAS litigation as well, all kinds of environmental litigation. So that's going to be a good one too. Today, we're going to talk about the insurance aspects from the perspective of companies, policyholders uh, that have been sued or have been, uh, or have a P, uh, PFAS contamination issue. As you'll hear, you don't have to be sued just to have an issue. Uh, and these folks, these policyholders want their insurers to give them the benefits of the insurance coverage that they're paying for. And um, I am pleased to have a preeminent authority on this subject, someone I've talked to for quite a long time, uh, since the 80s, that's the 1980s, in case I needed to be specific, Robert D. Chesler. He's a shareholder in Anderson Kill's Newark office. Anderson Kill, of course, famous for representing policyholders for decades and decades and responsible for much of the, uh, the law on insurance coverage for complex torts and other things. Bob, I'm going to call him Bob, he represents policyholders in a broad variety of coverage claims against their insurers. And he advises, he advises them, of course, on their insurance programs. He's not always just suing. Um, he's a, uh, you know the, what they call him? They call him a leading participant in the birth of modern insurance law. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. I'm pretty sure Bob wrote the first article in Mealy's Litigation Reports Insurance when... when when Mike Mealy started, he was covering asbestos insurance coverage. You know, Mike famously covered asbestos litigation. Bob wrote an article, you know, there's this thing going on with pollution <laughs> and the pollution exclusion. And then uh, that's how Mealy's litigation report insurance was born. So he's earned the reputation Bob has as the insurance guru. And I'll go with that for his exceptional knowledge of this, of this area of law. He handles other areas of insurance law too, like cyber, DNO, intellectual property, privacy, stuff like that. Bob um, obviously was a good student. And let's see, let's just start from the beginning. He, uh, he graduated summa cum laude from uh, Rutgers, uh, Rutgers State, excuse me, the State of Uni State University of New Jersey at Rutgers. Um, then he got a uh, master's from Princeton because that wasn't enough. He got a PhD from Princeton. And then um, you got a JD, his JD from Harvard, cum laude. So, yeah, he's good at book learning. <laughs> okay, um, I'll insert some banjo music when I say that. So anyway, I'm going to get right to it. Obviously, a very smart guy, very experienced, and he has devoted his career to this issue, which is a extremely important one in the world of environmental cleanup and liabilities and and insurance law. So it's my pleasure to interview interview and introduce Bob Chesler with Anderson Kill. Hope you enjoy it. Bob Chesler, I want to thank you for doing this today. We've worked together for many years. First, can you give us a sense of how big the PFAS issue is? This is a huge issue. PFAS is a man-made chemical or man-made chemicals that are extremely stable and don't degrade very much in groundwater, and they quickly spread in groundwater. They were used in thousands of substances, and it's resulting in a tsunami of lawsuits and regulatory actions. 
The manufacturers are being sued across the country, such as DuPont, Salve, and 3M. PFAS is often used as a coating for waterproofing, and people who manufacture everything from shoes to carpets to paper are being sued. The components of firefighting foam and airports and fire departments are being sued. Water districts are being sued, and they in turn sue their suppliers. Local and state governments are bringing suits. So it's really a massive uh, problem. And because it doesn't degrade in groundwater very much and spreads quickly, it's very expensive to remediate. So I guess it's got a nickname um, as a uh, forever chemical. Is that right? Yes. So it's one of those it's one of those things that's in a lot of products that no one ever thinks about, but it's everywhere and it's there for 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 forever, if not quite a long time. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about insurance and focus on that because that is always where a lot of uh, litigation ends up because of the enormous uh, the enormous liability and enormous damages. And as you said, you know, cleanup related or remediation related costs. So which insurance policies may apply to, to PFAS uh, groundwater contamination? Old historic general liability policies. General liability policies provide coverage for damages because of property damage. Groundwater is property, and contamination of groundwater is property damage, so there's prima facie coverage. Now, old policies, because of various exclusions in the policies, keep the new policies from being in play. You have coverage when the contamination takes place. So if contamination commences in 1960 and continues until 2020 when it's discovered, you have potentially 60 years of coverage because the contamination persists and keeps flowing and causing more contamination over time. So when you when you talk about these things, is uh, I used to write about quite a bit, and you were somebody I talked to a lot about this, the pollution exclusion, how does it come into play in this context? There are two pollution exclusion types. In 1986, the industry introduced an absolute pollution exclusion, and there's no coverage for contamination occurring post-1986. So you have to predate your contamination as commencing prior to that date. In 1973, the insurance industry put in a sudden and accidental pollution exclusion. There's a difference in interpretation of that exclusion. Some states say that the sudden means temporally sudden, and there's no coverage for anything except a boom event, which makes coverage for slow-flowing groundwater contamination difficult. Other states say that the sudden accidental is only a restatement of unintended and unexpected, and they have basically read that pollution exclusion in 1973 out of the policy. And those states have much better possibilities of coverage. On one end, uh, insurers might say it has to be literally something like an explosion, um, where I remember reading a lot of opinions where it's really even like with an underground drum, the first drip from that drum happened suddenly. I guess, am I, am I overstating that? It seems to be the, the range. Yes, usually that's considered gradual. You need something mm. like an explosion okay. in many states. Something a bit more. Okay. All right. Well, how do you determine when groundwater contamination started? That is an expert opinion issue. 
And as I said, you need to place it back before either 1986, 1973. You can check, for example, how far the groundwater contamination plume has traveled and compare that to the groundwater travel rate and try to figure out how old it is that way. You can try to date through breakdown chemicals as the PFAS uh, degrades in nature, and that's another way of dating them. This is really more of an art form than a science. You really need to uh, rely upon your environment consultant or an expert on the dating issue. You may have an event that has taken place, like a spill, or you know when you use the product that allow you to date operationally when the PFAS was used at your facility. Uh, there's certainly a lot to pin down from you know when it occurred where it occurred and then whose policies. But before we get into that, so how do you determine which state law applies since that, that's the state laws of, um, govern insurance? That's a very tricky issue because different states use different tests. In some states, the law of the place where the hazardous waste is located applies. In other states, the place where the insurance policy was entered into applies. While third, some states apply a multi-factor test that usually relies upon a center of gravity issue. I can give you an example. Mm -hmm. There was a case involving a New Jersey subsidiary of a Texas company. The subsidiary was liable for contamination in New Jersey. Under New Jersey law, there would have been coverage. Under Texas law, there wouldn't have been. The insurance company sued the insured first in Texas. The Texas court ruled that Texas law applied as the place of contracting and found no coverage. So choice of law and suing in the right forum is really critical here. You've got to do a careful analysis of all of the factors that contribute to choice of law analysis and make sure you choose the right forum for your litigation. And again, there's no standard form as to which state's law applies. It's a matter of state law and it differs dramatically from state to state. Can you elaborate? You said center of gravity applies. Can you just say a little bit more about that? There's a multi-factor test. Who, what is the interest of the insured? What is the interest of the government? What is the interest of interstate commerce? The court looks to various factors and often finds that the parties to the, to the insurance policy understood that the insured's principal place of business was the center of gravity of the insurance transaction and apply the law of that state. You've got a real variety of mechanisms to decide which state's law applies, and this can be dispositive, as in my example of New Jersey and Texas. Suing in the right jurisdiction can be determinative of coverage. And one of the first things that you need to do if you have an insurance issue with PFAS or with anything for that matter is to see if there's a choice of law issue, analyze choice of law, and decide on what form is most favorable. Typically, when you go with companies over decades, they're going to be different insurance companies that insured them. So how do you determine which insurance policies apply? Hopefully, the insured has not changed its operations or its ownership over the years, and the insured needs to trace back its own policy history. However, we frequently see companies changing corporate identity over the years. And you may be looking at your parent company's policies 
You may be looking at your predecessor company's policy. This raises issues as to whether the insurance policy right will properly assign if company A spins off company B as a separate company, does company B get the rights to company A's insurance policy? Again, this is the, a state where uh, this is an issue where the law differs from state to state. Some states will look to and to see whether the contracting documents for the spinoff include an assignment of insurance rights. Some will hold that happens automatically, but tracing insurance rights through corporate changes over a number of years can be a difficult task and is fraught with peril because the insurance rights may not have been correctly transferred over time to preserve the existing corporation's right to insurance coverage for the contamination. What if you had, you know, your policyholder had insurance from one company for 10 years and switched to another company? I guess I'm trying to get at which which insurance companies or which policies over time uh, are implicated. This is a trigger issue, and you mentioned this later on, an allocation and trigger issue. Oh, right. Yep. As I mentioned, in almost all states, the groundwater contamination is considered a continuing problem. The policies are triggered from the first date of the problem of the contamination commencing until it's discovered. So if you can say that I had a fire at my facility in 1970 and I used firefighting foam to put it out and that was the source of the problem, then if you were in a state that does not enforce the sudden and accidental pollution exclusion, all of your policies post-1970 to 1986 may apply. So it's really a historic, it's not a policy. It's a series mm -hmm. of policies in most states, law that will apply. And as you say further down, that leads to a number of issues as to allocation among these different insurance companies and between the insured and those insurance companies. As we talk about when we discuss notice, put everybody involved on notice, get everybody involved in the fight, and then you can pick and choose if you need to as to when exactly the contamination occurred, whose policies exactly are triggered. But as a general rule, it's a horizontal trigger that affects year after year of coverage. And if you have 10 years of coverage with company A from 1970 to 1980, and then 10 years of coverage from 1980 to 1990 with company B, then both of those companies are liable for all of their years, subject to pollution exclusions, and subject to allocation law of the state involved. Well, speaking of notice then, at what point should a policyholder uh, notify their insurer? Notice is critical. In some states, late notice is inexcusable and late notice is fatal to coverage. Mm -hmm. Georgia is an example of a state like that. So if you don't give notice immediately, you have no coverage. And those courts tend not to recognize exceptions to that rule. In most states, late notice only forecloses coverage if the insurance company has been appreciably prejudiced. That term is undefined what appreciably prejudiced means. In some states, it has proven almost impossible for an insurance company to show that it's been prejudiced 
and the late notice issue pretty much disappears. In other states, applying the same test, they find prejudice rather easily. But the lesson is notice is critical. Yeah. Many people don't give, can't give notice early because they don't know who their insurance companies are. And finding out who those insurance companies are and giving notice as soon as possible is critical. Right. But the first thing that you should learn from this podcast is notice, notice, notice. Get out there to your insurance companies. Also, insurance companies don't like being surprised. Mm-hmm. If you give notice quickly and cooperate with your insurance company and keep it informed of developments, you have a better chance of getting coverage. If you surprise the insurance company the day before a settlement and say, we need a million dollars, give it to us immediately, <laughs> they don't have the time to react and they're going to be much more antagonistic toward coverage. Right. So late yeah. notice, so early notice not only deals with the notice problem, it's an issue of relationships between the insured and the insurer. Mm-hmm. And again, building those relationships and getting the insurance company involved if possible in the process. And so the insurance company is knowledgeable and understands the risks and the damages involved can be critical. Well, which uh, I asked when, but I didn't ask what would make them give notice. Like the minute they think they have a a contamination problem or do they have to be sued? The minute they have a contamination problem. Okay. The insurance policy has two notice provisions. The first is to give notice of an occurrence which is knowledge of potential liability. And knowledge of groundwater contamination pretty much is knowledge of potential liability. In federal law and in most states, it's strict liability joint and several. If you ask me to notice of occurrence provision and give notice of the discovery of the groundwater contamination, you then have to give notice of the lawsuit itself if one is filed against you. That's a separate vision in the policy, and that notice must be given as soon as practicable. But for the insured's point of view, give notice as soon as you know of groundwater contamination. Get your insurance companies involved. Find your old insurance policies. Early notice is critical. Don't wait to be sued or to hear from the government. Get your insurance company involved. Um, Are there big cases that come to mind, I guess when I was asking you how big this is, what kind of liabilities have you seen or litigation you've seen that help might help me size for the for folks? Kind of, oh, these uh, are financial huge cases. Uh-huh. These are cases in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. These are yep. huge groundwater remediation problems. There is no such thing as a small PFAS problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't... Okay. It moves yeah. quickly. It doesn't degrade. They're still devising cleanup remedies for it. This is a very serious issue, and getting an insurance company involved early on is critical, as I keep saying. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But these, are, a- these are huge liability issues. This is not, you know, sinking a well for $100,000. Right. This is major remediation. A lot of the policies implicated are going to be pretty old. Uh, what do you tell people? A lot of people wonder, well, the the first response when I say pre-1986 insurance policies may apply is, how do I find those policies? First, I note that you don't need copies of the policy. In almost all states, secondary evidence of insurance is sufficient. And in many states, 
very little secondary evidence is necessary to defeat a summary judgment motion by the insurance company on the issue of whether you have proven the policy. Any scrap of paper can be useful. I've gotten coverage when I literally had a single page of a letter that contained the name of the insurance company and a policy number. Mm -hmm. That's all you might need. So doing a thorough search is terribly important. Now, your company may have an insurance file if you're lucky. It goes back many years. Most companies don't. Your broker may be a good source of policies, but brokers only keep information for so long. Many many companies change brokers over time, and that's not a sure thing. There is a profession, believe it or not, called insurance archaeologists. They are expert in finding old policies. They know what corporate minute books might have policy information in them. They know if you were sued 20 years ago, that litigation file may have evidence of the insurance policies. The U.S. Navy kept track of the insurance of its vendors. And the U.S. Navy documents are a source of information about insurance. There are a lot of methods that are not available to the layperson for finding insurance policies or insurance information from many years ago. I just had a case. I'm in the middle of a case, I should say, where the insured started with no evidence whatsoever of its policies. And an insurance archaeologist found all of the policies from 1974 to 1986. It was incredible. They produced tens of millions of dollars of coverage for this company by finding the policies. And I highly recommend that if you have a PFAS problem that dates back many years and you don't have a policy file in your office and your broker can't help you, go to an insurance archaeologist. And feel free to contact me if you want a recommendation of the name of one, because they're not easy to find, of course. <laughs> but insurance archaeologists are a tremendous resource. Yeah, talk about a specialty, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's really pretty strange. As we discussed, you don't need to be sued to have coverage. You don't have you have coverage for lawsuits, of course, but your coverage is for damages because of property damage. Once you have groundwater contamination, which is property damage, all of the attendant costs that follow are damages that are covered by it. You don't need to be sued in most states. California is the one exception, which has its own law on this issue. But if you were being pursued by a regulator, or even if you engage in a so-called voluntary cleanup because you know you have strict liability under the law, you should have coverage regardless because these are damages because of property damage for which you are legally liable. So again, you don't need to be sued, and that's a real problem for many people. Many companies know know that if they're sued, they give notice to their insurance company. Many companies don't know that if their environment consultant reports back on contamination, and they have to uh, get the remediation process underway, they're covered for that without a lawsuit. That makes it difficult for the general counsel and the insurance manager because the people in the field who are dealing with these issues 
often don't think to put the people at the corporation itself, the general counsel's office or the risk manager's office on notice because they don't know it might be covered. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to be sued to have coverage. So, uh, you know, the big headline from this is, uh, I think, if you give a, a whiff of a potential PFAS pollution problem to notify your insurer, I, I'm just curious, besides things like um, untimely notice, say, mm -hmm. uh, or you can't find the policies, what, what kind of arguments do carriers typically uh, offer up to say we don't, you don't have coverage? The pollution exclusions are very bad for coverage. As I said, there's no coverage for contamination that commences post-1986 in any state. In states that enforce the sudden accidental pollution exclusion, which includes major states like New York and California, there's no coverage post-1973 because of the pollution exclusion. So that's a major defense by mm -hmm. the insurance industry. Also, it's the insured's burden to show when the contamination took place. And if you discover contamination in 2020, it's your burden to show that it commenced prior to 1986, 1973. And that's not an easy burden to meet necessarily. And it's another defense by the insurance companies. Notice is a big defense, as we've mentioned. So there are defenses to coverage. Mm -hmm. But the basic issue is that groundwater contamination is covered property damage as a starting point. That's the prima facie case for coverage. And that's where you start. And the insurance company has to start looking for reasons to exclude coverage. Say there's uh, groundwater contamination that takes place right now, today. You know, somebody's got a lot yeah. of PFAS. So it sounds like that's a tougher, that's going to be a tougher case, right? Yes. There are current policies in place that are called, uh, that are basically environmental policies that are one-year claims-made policy. So if you're a company that's at a site, and you buy a contractor's pollution insurance policy for the year 2022, and you discover PFAS during that year, you may have coverage. Gotcha. But it's a for that policy. year. However, the insurance industry is very aware of PFAS and is doing very careful underwriting to avoid this issue on new policies. And in some cases, even excluding PFAS from the policy. So while it's possible to have coverage under a current environmental policy, such as a contractor's pollution legal liability policy, it's getting less and less likely to be able to find such coverage in the future. There are insurance brokers who specialize in these policies, in these current claims made pollution legal liability policies. And if you're a water district or an industrial facility or whatever, you should work with one of those specialists, see if you can get coverage that fits your needs. If you discover a PFAS or another groundwater problem at your facility or at a site that you uh, were involved in. So let's wrap it up. Let's give listeners what you think are the key takeaways from this podcast. Again, choice of law, choice of form is critical. Early notice is critical. Knowing the law of each state that might be involved is critical. You need either a lawyer or a consultant who knows the law on all of these issues in each state, really, to judge when, where, and how you should sue. And getting that type of person involved early on is critical. Your environmental consultant who you rely upon does not have those answers. You will not be able to solve the problem through your environmental consultant. You will need somebody with more knowledge than that and probably a coverage attorney to do the analysis for you. 
Do you have any in mind? <laughs> there were a lot of them out there, to be honest. <laughs> well, Bob, thanks very much for talking to me about this. Sure, it's my pleasure. And uh, I hope we keep this conversation going. I'm glad I can make myself laugh. You know, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. Uh, or I'm nuts. That brings us to the end of that uh, podcast, or this podcast episode. Uh, it was my pleasure again to interview Robert D. Chesler, Bob Chesler, longtime insurance coverage lawyer and one of the leading uh, minds on the subject of insurance coverage for complex claims, long tail claims, etc. So I'll do, do us a favor. If you uh, like the podcast, share it with your friend, the podcast or the podcast or my diction, share it with your friends. Give us a rating. We would appreciate it. Uh, we are growing and, as usual, having fun doing it. I'm Tom Hagee, your host with HB Litigation. This is a collaboration between my company and Fastcase and Law Street Media. I'm also editor-in-chief of the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, another collaboration between myself and Fastcase Full Court Press. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Mm-hmm.